Hey, Sanctus Church, so glad that you're joining us. Welcome to week two in this very unusual, unique summer series as we explore the icons of our faith. Probably haven't thought about it much this week, but let me remind you of something we all know. Human beings need water and food and shelter to survive. But there are also other human needs we all desperately have. We need hope, stability, and everyone longs deeply for that sense of security. Hope, stability, security. Three foundational human shared needs. And interestingly, maybe shockingly, but truthfully, the Christian faith, Jesus himself promises those three things, hope, stability, security, in the truest sense, if we choose not only to know him, but to actually walk with him. Now, all of these are connected to this next icon, this next image that the early Christians used. Maybe you know it as a Christian image, maybe you don't. It's called the anchor. Now, I love the ocean, maybe you do too. I, I love being on boats. And whether you've thought about it or not, every boat, at least I've ever been on, from a small little fishing boat to, let's say, a large Disney cruise line, they all have one thing, anchors. Now, I hadn't thought much about anchors, but I found it as I was getting ready for this sermon. There are a ton of different styles of anchors. Now, if you just look up the word anchor in a dictionary, it says an anchor is a device to prevent a boat from drifting due to wind or currents. It prevents you from going somewhere you don't want to go. But then I learned there's three types of anchors. Uh, there's something called a hooking anchor, a sheer mass anchor, and a sea anchor. A hooking anchor is what you think about right there. It hooks into the ground to stop you from moving. A sheer mass anchor doesn't look like that at all. It's just a massive weight, and the weight itself holds the boat in a place. And a sea anchor actually causes sort of pressure or drag in the water and acts like a brake for a large boat. So all the different types of anchors, think about it. This is what anchors do. They stop you from drifting off course. They slow you down. They stop you from being out of control. They keep you in a needed place. They stop you from being shipwrecked. They stop you from being destroyed. Now, you don't really think about an anchor until you actually need to use the anchor. And when there's trouble, you're looking for that thing. And that's why we need to reflect on this symbol together again today. I was, I think around 17 or 18, the first time I went to Rome with my parents. I've had the privilege of being there many times. And I remember we were doing a bus tour and my parents said, what's one thing you really wanna see in Rome? I said, well, other than the Colosseum and the Vatican, I wanna go to the catacombs. And they were like, you want to go to a graveyard? I'm like, yes, I really wanna go to a graveyard. Now you might not know this, just outside of Rome, there are catacombs that were used from the first to the third century they are like layers deep. And I remember walking into it, walking down layer after layer. And, and by the way, all the bodies are just there. Just tens of thousands of bones, bodies are laid on these shelves. Now, the reason why I wanted to go wasn't because I loved death or it was macabre. I wanted to go because this is actually where Christians met in secret to worship when it was against the law. And what's amazing, in the middle of all of this death, there are signs of life. This is where a lot of the early Christian art or symbols are used. And one of the symbols that showed up again and again and again was the anchor. In one cemetery alone, there are 70 examples of this anchor. Now, our English word anchor comes from the Latin word ancora, which just means the hook or anchor for a ship. But the verb form of anchor means to fix or secure in a particular place. So let me say this again, to be secure, 
to be held, to be fixed in a place, to not let yourself be swept away, to not be drowned, to not be moved. That's why the early Christians used this symbol. Now, the Jesus fish, which we talked about last week, ichthus, might have been the earliest Christian symbol, but this one was right behind it. And this was the most common symbol for hundreds of years. And this symbol was adapted to represent the hope we have in Jesus right now and the hope we have, of course, in the not yet. And the anchor became one of the great tomb markers for Christians because our life, our death, and our resurrection is anchored in Jesus. Now, when Christianity began to spread, there was lots of trouble. The government was against it. Uh, Neighbors, friends, and family were against it. And so Christians were like, we need to keep our faith somewhat secret. And yet we still want to use the symbol of the cross, but if we use it, it's really obvious. So what happened is a lot of early Christians just added the two bottom parts to the cross, and this allowed them to use the anchor as an undercover symbol while still keeping the cross in plain sight. But another person did a lot more work on this, and listen to how they outline it. He said the first century symbol wasn't the cross. It was the anchor. If I'm a first century Christian and I'm hiding in the catacombs because three of my best friends have just been thrown to the lions or burned at the stake or crucified or terribly set ablaze as a torch at one of Emperor Nero's garden parties, the symbol that most encourages me in my faith is the anchor. When I see it, I'm reminded that Jesus is my anchor. But then he said, but when did Christians get the idea to use the anchor in the first place? Well, in 180, so that's only 10 years after John, dies, and only 70 plus plus years after Jesus, of course, dies and rises from the dead, the fourth leader of our movement in Rome was a guy named Clement. And the emperor Trajan was so angry at him, he banished him to Crimea, which we would call Ukraine today. Well, when he went there, St. Clement, as we call him now, ended up leading everyone in Crimea or tons of people to Jesus. Well, Trajan was so upset that he actually commanded soldiers to tie Clement to an anchor and drown him, which he did. He died for the faith. Now, tradition holds, as one wrote, that the sea receded three miles and Clement's body was buried by angels in a marble mausoleum at the bottom, which of course is a fairy tale. But his martyrdom was real and the anchor became this inspiration for the persecuted church. And again, one person said, given its power, why did the anchor suddenly just stop being used? Well, there's a few reasons, but one of the interesting things is after 300 AD, there are like no examples. And the most common explanation is this. Well, the Christian movement went from being persecuted to actually Rome sponsoring Christianity. So they no longer needed this symbol to be secret and identify themselves as Christians. It made a huge comeback, by the way, in the 16th, 17th, and 1800s with Christians marking their tombs with this. But then it fell out of, of course, style again. But it's coming back now. Now, with all that behind us, let's again remind ourselves the symbol was pointing to safety, security, and hope in a person, a living person, in Jesus, and what he gives us in this life and the life beyond. One of the great Christian leaders, Ambrose is his name, he was from around 300 AD, said, as the anchor thrown from a ship prevents it from being thrown about, but holds it securely, so faith is strengthened by hope. Watch this. Our anchor is hope. And our hope as a Christian, if you are one, is Jesus. 
Jesus himself is our anchor. Jesus's work is our anchor. Jesus's word is our anchor. He and what he gives us makes us secure, gives us firm footing. Now, we've heard already why the early Christians in the first hundred years chose the anchor. But did the early Christians get the idea from the Bible itself? Yes, 100%. And to find where they found the idea of the anchor, you need to turn to the book of Hebrews. But to understand why it matters and to actually understand the Christian faith and be thankful and be inspired again why Jesus is our anchor, you can never start with Jesus. You have to go back to almost the beginning. You need to go back to Abraham. He's the father of all people who believe and encounter the true living God. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews 6.13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, God swore by himself. And he said, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. You're like, what does that have to do with anchors? Hold on. God here says that he had decided to create a people that would know him personally. And also in this moment, God was setting up the situation where Abraham becomes the example of how a sinful human being gets to meet the God who created everything and have relationship again. Paul put it like this in Galatians 3.6. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Okay, let me tie these two things together and why they end up being the reason for the Christian using the image of an anchor. Abraham's first name wasn't Abraham. It was Abram. He used to worship all sorts of other gods. His dad was a moon worshiper. He had no idea there was one true living God, and yet God chose him. Genesis 12.1, the Lord said to Abram, I, God, command you to go forth with closed eyes until having renounced your country, you've given yourself wholly unto me. I'll make you, Abram, into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'll make your name great, and, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And all the peoples of earth will be blessed through you. So watch this. God, in his decision-making, his sovereignty, chooses Abram, who becomes Abraham, and his ancestors, Israel, to be his people and his representatives on earth. Not because they were better. Watch this. Not because they were more religious. Not because they weren't following idols. No, no. He just did it because he decided out of mercy and mystery. The foundation of the Jewish faith, Judaism, and Christianity is that God meets Abram, a moon worshiper, and shows him there's only one true living God, and he chooses Abraham. Abraham doesn't choose him. God starts, destines, decrees, appoints, and settles beforehand that Abram's family will be his people. And then all people will be blessed through Abraham's children, not just the Jews, everyone. So God promises that he's going to have kids, and they'll become a great nation, which of course is the Jewish people. And even here, right, we're only 12 chapters into the first book of the Bible, we see a foreshadow of Jesus. How will every ethnic group on earth actually be blessed through Abraham? Because from the Jews comes Jesus, who provides a way back to God. And at the end of time in Revelation, it's not just the Jews in the new heaven and the new earth worshiping God and living in freedom. It's someone from, well, it's not just someone, it's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Well, Abraham gets to know God, but he comes back to God later and says, I got a problem. You say that I'm going to bless all the nations because I'm going to actually produce a nation, but I don't have any kids because me and my wife are really old and she's barren. I don't think you lied, but nothing's going on. Genesis 15, 3. 
Abraham said to God, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household is going to be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came back to Abram. This man will not be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, you look up. This is God to Abram. You look up at the sky and you count the stars, if indeed you can even count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram, ready, believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Ready? Abraham is called righteous. What does righteous mean? Okay with God, in relationship with God, forgiven. The very first person who knows God as a Jew, Abraham, was made right by the true living God because God chose him, not because Abram was looking for God. And he was called righteous 10 years before God started introducing the idea of circumcision for boys and males as a symbol of relationship. By Jesus' time, Jews were saying, if you're not circumcised, you're going straight to hell. But he's made right 10 years before that. And even more wild, he's considered okay with God 400 years before Moses has given the Ten Commandments. So God says, Abram, Abraham, you are already righteous. You're already in good standing with me because I chose you. But what did Abram do in response? He believed. He had faith. Faith in faith. Faith in himself. No, no. Faith in God and his promises. And right when he says, I trust you, God, God credited him. God wiped out a mortgage he couldn't pay off. He declared him. It's a legal thing. It's a conferred thing. You now are okay with me. I love when uh, Tim Keller once said, this means that God is treating Abraham as if he was living a perfect, righteous life. That flies in the face of all traditional religious thinking that tells us either we're living righteous and therefore we're pleasing and acceptable to God, or we're living unrighteously and therefore we are alienated to God. But Paul in Galatians and Abraham here are showing that it is possible to be loved and accepted by God while we ourselves are sinful and still imperfect. That's why years later, Paul wrote it in Romans 4 too. If in fact, Abraham was justified by what he did, by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God, because what does the Old Testament say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's why the author of Hebrews starts the conversation about anchors, which we're not at yet, here. God calls, God promises blessing, God's will cannot be stopped, Jesus has blessed all nations, Abraham becomes the example of how we get saved through faith alone, in Jesus alone, and then we receive grace and mercy alone. This is the foundation and the anchor of our hope. It doesn't matter how religious you are, it's not enough. It doesn't matter how, how broken you are. It's, listen, you need someone else to declare you okay. Well, the author of Hebrews is not done. In Hebrews 6.15, he keeps telling the story. So after waiting patiently, Abraham received what God had promised. Isaac was given to Abraham at 100 years old. And again, he had faith. He knew God would not lie. And then at this moment, the story gets bad and weird and wild and scary. After God gives Abraham and Sarah their boy Isaac, who's going to become the father of this great nation, God comes to Abraham and says, now I want you to give him up. I want you to sacrifice your only son to me and kill him. So Abraham obeys God. He raises the knife, if you've read this story. And right when it's all going to go down, it says in Genesis 22, 12, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to him. And Abraham looked up 
And there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. And that's what he sacrifices. Then it says in verse 16, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, you have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. God reaffirms, God repeats his promises, and he says, this is going down. Now, when we as human beings reaffirm things, we, we take oaths. We say, I, I mean this, I swear this. Well, that's what the author of Hebrews points at, verse 16. People swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all the argument. But God wanted to make the unchangeable nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. And he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. So we as human beings say, well, I swear this is true, or God is my witness, or in a court case, I put my hand in the Bible, this is true. In a Jewish context, during Jesus' day, I believe, the strongest oath you could say is, as surely as God lives, we all need a higher power. We all need an all-seeing, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful person to keep us accountable and back us up. And yet, we all know human beings swear and take oaths, and we're still sinful. So we're inconsistent, we break our word, we lie, or we don't have all the facts. There's shadow in us. But God, God does not lie. There's no shadow in him. So what does God do when he wants to make an oath? He swears by himself because he is perfection. And God does not lie. And God has actually done what he promised. God's purposes and God's intentions can be counted on. God swore this. He does not have the ability to lie. He is both the guarantee and the guarantor. And finally, after all that is established, we finally come to the key verse, the, the foundational verse that was used to create this symbol. Hebrews 6.19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Our hope is based in God's promises. Our anchor is God's promises. Our hope is rooted beyond ourselves. Our hope is, 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 is rooted that, that God calls us. Our hope, our anchors, God does not let us work to get to know him. It's only gift and he calls us. Our hope is that God does not lie. Our hope is rooted in the fact that God actually wants to bless all nations, not just one nation. Our hope is in the fact that all nations have been blessed through Jesus, but Jesus alone. Our hope is in the fact that through faith in Jesus alone, he makes us righteous and he confers a legal status over us we don't deserve. All of this is why Jesus is called our anchor. I love when one person said, we are all moored to an immovable object. The anchor is God himself found in Jesus Christ. But keep reading. There's a part B to this. Hebrews 6, 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. And then watch this. Our hope enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So, so watch this. Our hope, our anchor, it says, walked into the Holy of Holies. 
Now, this is a reference back to something we've talked about this year. And if you are a seeker or skeptic or you're not familiar with church, this might not make sense to you. Let me unpack it to you because it brings the hope even stronger uh, to, to bear. There's this thing that's still celebrated by Jews today called Yom Kippur. It's called the Day of Atonement. It's like spring cleaning once a year spiritually. And atonement's a really critical word. Atonement means to cover over reparation, amend, compensation, penalty, or payment for wrong or injury, loss, or damage. In other words, we've all sinned against God. We've all rebelled against God. The most religious person on earth, the most spiritual person on earth, the most secular person on earth, we have all declared war on God because we've broken his law and we've walked away. So we need atonement. We need to deal with that issue. And in the Jewish world, once a year, the high priest would go into God's presence to deal with sin. It reads like this in Leviticus 16, 12. The high priest takes a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense to take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before God and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the Ark of the Covenant so that he will not die. So you've got the priest, the high priest, he's crossed the the point of no return. He's actually immersed in God's very presence on earth. This is where heaven and earth touch. And God's presence is right above the Ark of the Covenant. And all that's between him as a sinful human being and a perfect God is the thin veil of smoke. And then he has to deal with his own sin. And it takes blood to deal with that. Verse 14, he's to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the atonement cover. He'll show sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. So you have blood being sprinkled seven times. Why? Because seven represents perfection. Now, this is just him dealing with his own sin. Then he leaves God's presence, and then he basically does this again. He comes in now to deal with the sin of every Jewish person that's alive at that moment. Verse 15, he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In other words, to cover the sin. So the high priest goes back into the Holy of Holies where the ark is found, where God's presence is literally just above it to sprinkle this blood to deal with sin. Now, this was only a shadow, a picture to deal with what actually was really to come. Jesus, when he dies on Good Friday and spills his blood, becomes the ultimate Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, our hope, Jesus, our anchor, has done all of this by his blood, firmly, fully, permanent, and forever. That's why uh, earlier in Hebrews, it says this in Hebrews 10, 9, therefore, if you're a Christian, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, what, if you just walked into God's presence before you die, oh, by the blood of Jesus, we're covered by a new and living way, open, for us through the curtain, that is Jesus's body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. (coughs) Having our hearts sprinkled, cleansed, uh, our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So here's the point. Jesus is our anchor and this symbol matters because Jesus has done everything we need. And notice our security and our hope and everything we're looking for, our safety in the greatest sense, is rooted in another. See, this symbol matters 
especially when life gets difficult. I think all of us could say the last 16 or 18 months have been profoundly difficult. And most people would explain or, or talk about their life being like just tossed here and there by every news announcement and every political opinion everywhere. When we go through a wild storm of loss or unexpected tragedy, we need a grounding. We need a stability. We need something stronger than ourselves, our faults, our strengths, our abilities, our education, our sins. We need someone else to give us hope. We need someone else to give us stability. We need someone else to give us security because it's not going to be found in us at the end of the time. And that's the amazing thing about Jesus. When you meet him and you accept him and God calls you and you put your trust in Jesus, he becomes all of that in the worst of times. But Let's say we weren't going through COVID at this moment. Maybe you're listening to this sermon years from now and you're like, what's COVID? Much of the time, life is boring. It's not that eventful. But actually, it's in those moments where actually life can be even more concerning spiritually than a huge storm. We can start drifting and not even feel it or see it. Ever been on a boat or a kayak and a canoe and you just stop rowing and you're sitting there and suddenly you end up at another part of the lake? You're like, how did I get here? Because the current is always moving. See, we need someone to stop us from drifting off, cor off course, which happens all the time because of our personal sin, because of the devil's temptations, because we live in a world that doesn't love God, and because of pain. The amount of people that I've seen de deconstruct their faith and misrepresent God or change God because of their pain in the last 16 months, through the roof. We need someone to slow us down. We need, to some, uh, we, we need someone to stop us from going where the world is going. We need someone to stop us from being shipwrecked or even spiritually destroyed. That's why Jesus is our anchor. And did you catch it? Time and time again, the word anchor and hope are connected. Why does this matter? Well, if God has called you, and if God has justified you, and you've put faith in him through Jesus, then Jesus actually is your anchor. And then the Bible, as one person points out, produces four things. If Jesus is truly your anchor, if he truly is, then these four things will come out of your life because of that anchoring. Here's the first thing. If Jesus truly is your anchor, then that anchor and that hope will produce a holy life. Here's how Jesus' best friend said it in 1 John 3.3. All those that have this hope in Jesus purify themselves just as he is pure. See, if you really believe Jesus is your anchor, if you really believe that Jesus is coming back, if you really believe that he's going to make all things right, if you really think he's that good, that loving, that beautiful, that's the only reason why you deny yourself. That's the only reason why you'd give up something that you love, that you want to do, that you're tempted to do, that culture says you must do, because you actually have discovered a greater love, a greater stability, a greater security, a greater hope. See, when this idea that Jesus has done so much of this for you comes home close to you, suddenly, though it's hard, you'll say, I will crucify myself. I will deny myself because actually I want purity because I look like the security, hope, and stability in my anchor, Jesus. If you want to live a holy life, see how strong your anchor is. Here's the second thing. When you understand that Jesus is your anchor, it will produce a very strong faith. Now, I'd love everyone just to lean in and really listen to what I'm about to say, because I see this being a major problem. 
near the end of Paul's life, he put it like this in 1 Timothy 1.19. He said, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regards to their faith. In 1 Timothy, these pastors and teachers and leaders started teaching two false things. First of all, they said, you don't need to obey the Bible. You don't need to obey Jesus. See, Jesus has forgiven you of all your sins, and it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Uh, It doesn't matter what you do sexually or with your money or relationally. It just doesn't matter. Grace, grace, and more grace. You're just covered. Live any way you want. You don't need to obey. Just believe. That false teaching started to shipwreck all sorts of people. Also, they started teaching that Jesus didn't really physically rise from the dead. He just spiritually raised from the dead. They divorced the physical from the spiritual. When you know, listen in please, that Jesus is your anchor and you know his word is so important, you will know that that leads to shipwreck, that will lead to destruction, and you will reject this. Paul addressed this earlier in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 4.11. He said this, so Jesus the Messiah himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ might be built up, verse 14. Therefore, when, oh sorry, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, every Instagram post, every new meme that's out of context, and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. See, here's what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy and Ephesians 4. You have to anchor yourself in the real Jesus. And you also need to anchor yourself under godly leadership. And you need to anchor yourself in God's word. You have to sit under his word, the scriptures, to actually form your life. Infants cannot help themselves. Infants are defenseless and they're unable to protect themselves. So many of you that I'm speaking to right now are Christians who are sitting in a boat, except there is very little paddling going on and there's no rudder. And see, if you're not forming yourself under God's word, then you will be swayed here and there by every political statement and every religious statement and every meme and every moment. And, and you will not even recognize Jesus or his word soon enough. Through Jesus and his word, we are formed, protected, and anchored. But if you unattach yourself from Jesus, and if you unattach yourself from how Jesus even used the Bible himself, if you unattach yourself from the scripture as scripture, you will be tossed drift off course, and then shipwrecked. If you want to understand why the anchor is important, well, number one, critically, it produces a holy life. Number two, it produces a strong faith. Number three is this, it produces patience in you. Remember, our anchors is rooted in the future. Romans 8.25, but if we have hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The anchor reminds us that we don't have everything yet like those early Christians who were suffering, who were literally burying their friends who had just been murdered for being Christians and they were putting the sign of the anchor above that tomb moment, that, that, that shelf. They were reminding themselves that patience was critical for the Christian because at the end of patience, Jesus returns and makes all things right. Here's the last thing that the anchor produces in a Christian life, joy, joy. Romans 12, 12, be joyful in hope patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. 
Be hope, full of hope when life is amazing. Be full of hope when life is terrible. Be full of hope when life is boring. God is so sovereign and he's gonna work everything out. By the way, I've taught this a hundred times before, let me do it again. Joy isn't happiness. Happiness is based on what you experience, what you have, who you know, who liked you this week and who didn't. Joy is the deep down knowing that God has you, loves you, is gonna make all things right. And joy is anchored in hope and our hopes is anchored in Jesus himself. I love years ago when the famous evangelist from Chicago, D.L. Moody, said these words. He said, joy flows right through trouble. Joy flows through the dark. Joy flows in the night and joy flows in the day. Joy flows all through persecution and opposition. It was Henry Nouwen, the great Catholic thinker, who just died in, in the last 20 years, I think, he said, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. As we come to an end of this part of our message, you know, it's interesting. Every time I preach, sometimes people say, you know, I knew all that. Awesome. We can't always learn something new in a sermon. But the question for us as we're listening to a sermon is not, did I just learn something new? But actually, even if I knew all of that, what is the Holy Spirit saying to me right now? Why is God bringing this sermon, this message, this passage, this idea to me right now? Well, number one, honestly, honestly, how is your Christian life looking these days? How pure is it? Like genuinely, how holy is it? Uh, two, how strong is your faith? Uh, three, how is your patience going? Four, how much joy do you have? If you are starting to see massive deficiencies in joy, patience, real strong, rooted faith, or a holy life, that is a sign to you as a Christian. You've started to decouple yourself from your anchor in his word. It's, it's sort of like when your body is telling you something's wrong and you need to go and get an x-ray to see what's going on, what, what's wrong there. If, if you're struggling with holiness or being grounded as a Christian, or patience or joy, I'd encourage you this week to go back to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're my anchor. And your word, the living word and the written word, this is my anchor. I gotta come back. Would you start producing holiness in me, faith in me, patience in me, joy in me. This is a real moment where God might actually do some surgery and hope, give you some hope again. And again, if you're a seeker or a skeptic or not a Christian, listen, all this is offered to you. You've just seen the good news of Jesus. Can you imagine having an anchor that's not reliant on you, your family, your education, your wealth, your degrees, your background, your perseverance, but it's actually just gift? He's inviting you today. He's inviting you today to say to him, actually, I need you to make me pure and I need a real faith and I need you to produce patience and joy I don't have. I'm gonna trust like Abraham did in Jesus and ask him to make me right. Wherever you're listening to this in the world today, would you just pray with me for a second? Let's just do this. Number one, thank you, God, you called us when we were looking for you. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that he is our hope behind the curtain. Thank you, he's also the sacrifice that makes us pure. And what we just, we pray this, that you would strengthen security in the truest sense and hope and stability in our lives through the anchor Jesus. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would begin to, to speak to people at this moment not just hearing another sermon, but begin to talk about our holy lives and our deep faith and our patience and joy and begin to point out the deficiencies so you actually can build this up. And again, for anyone who's listening, who's never ever said yes to the living God through Jesus, 
just at this moment, wherever you might be in a car, in a bathroom, in the middle of a bedroom, listening in a living room, on some podcast on a plane, maybe you're sitting on a train uh, back to work, or maybe you're literally traveling right now and someone's just passed away, or, or you're going to go just wherever you're at, just say, Jesus from the Bible, I put my trust in you. I need you to be my anchor. I, I admit I'm sinful. I'm broken. I'm like Abraham. I need you to call me. I say yes to you and make me clean. I need you to say you're righteous because I'm not righteous by myself. Help me to begin to walk with you. And lastly, we just thank you, Jesus, that this anchor thing is not invented. It's not optimism. It's hope. And may people be strengthened by this anchor this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.